Hey, my name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. Uh, we're Baltimore's nonprofit literary arts center. And uh, for some reason, the Pratt uh, Library allows uh, my organization to take over this beautiful historic landmark for a day. So I want to uh, definitely recognize uh, uh, the Pratt Library for, for allowing me to do that. Um, and uh, also, as a reminder, that uh, the Barnes & Noble from University of Baltimore are handling book sales. And both uh, Teresa's book and Jen's book uh, will be available for sale down there. So immediately after their presentation... Um, uh, they're going to make their way downstairs to the first floor in the sales and signing area so you can continue conversations there and, and, and obtain copies of their books. Um, and I'm, So unfortunately I need to leave because <laughs> after doing this for 10 years I've not learned that I can't be in two places at the same time. Um, so I'm going to introduce both readers and then uh, Jen will come up to read and then Therese. Uh, and then they've got an idea of a conversation they're at least going to start uh, engaging one another with uh, after their readings, and then uh, they'll entertain uh, questions from the audience. So our first uh, reader will be Jen Mikowski, who is the author of the novel The Tide King, winner of the 2012 Big Moose Prize, the short story collection from here, and uh, the second collection, Close Encounters. And the novella, which I believe she'll be reading from today, uh, Could You Be With Her Now? Uh, she is the founding editor of the literary quarterly JMWW, and a co-host of the 510 Readings, uh, which happened already yes. <laughs> earlier today, and uh, the biennial uh, show uh, called Lit Show at the Creative Alliance. So I thought I saw Betsy in here. No? Oh, somewhere. With co-host uh, Betsy Boyd. Um, she's also the editor of the anthology City Sages Baltimore, which uh, Baltimore Magazine called a Best of Baltimore in 2010, and it was the first title that City Lit Press released. Um, and Jen's just a great friend. Jen is... At the same time, I saw sort of a need for some sort of force in the literary arts to bring cohesion to the scene here in Baltimore. Jen saw that too. So um, as many great ideas are born, um, things like City Lit and the 510 were, were born in a bar over beers, sort of just chatting about ways that we can raise the profile of Baltimore's literary arts community. Um, and, uh, and I'm just really excited for Jen. She's going to have a great 2013 with a lot of publications coming out. And, uh, you know, she's... Uh, you, you hear people call other writers like a writer's writer. Boy, she's just she is a community organizer. Organizer. She's an editor, uh, pr uh, publishing uh, other people's fiction and work, and uh, she does her own work. So it's just a real honor to have Jen with us today, um, someone I've known for so long, and, and really do value her friendship. Uh, Tree Swoboda's uh, Tin God is just out in paperback from Bison Books. And Bison Books is the uh, trade in print uh, for the University of Nebraska Press, uh, Nebraska being the state that Therese happens to be from. So there's nice synergy there. Um, she'll be reading from Tin God today. Uh, Therese's uh, writing has appeared in Paris Review, The New Yorker, TLS, Narrative Magazine, and other publications. She's the author of five volumes of poetry and four novels, including Tin God, which was originally published in uh, 2006. And just this week... Uh, she was uh, one of uh, 200 uh, recipients of a Guggenheim uh, Fellowship. Uh, so she is going to have some uh, opportunity to um, clear her plate and uh, focus on her creative work for, for the foreseeable future. And just to give you a little bit of context, uh, and because I didn't know this, um, every year there are about 4,000 nominations uh, submitted to the Guggenheim Foundation, of which only about 200 fellowships are allocated. 
And from those 200 on roughly, well, this year anyway, only 25 writers of fiction or nonfiction or, or poetry received. So it really is an, an honor for Therese and a great honor uh, to have her today at the City Lit Festival. So, uh, Jen, if you don't mind kicking us off with your reading, uh, and just join me in welcoming our, our fiction writers today. Thanks, Greg. See you around. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. Um, I have to say it's, it's dangerous to have so many germinating things happen over beer. Like, I think I'm still working off the weight. Um, and congratulations, Teresa. That's so awesome. You, you go. We're going to have a parade after, after the reading for you. We're going to parade around the library. Um, I'm actually, I do, have a, I do have a book that just came out in January. Could you be with her now? It's two novellas. But I was hoping, I have a, a novel coming out next month called The Tide King. And I wanted to read um, a bit from that to get you excited about it. And um, I have some bookmarks here. But yeah, The Tide King will be out in May. I'm going to read a little bit from it. Um, it's about a lot of things. Um, it's about a, a mystical herb that's t brought from Poland in the 1800s to America. It's about a man who takes the herb and lives forever. Um, it's about families. But mostly it's about um, loneliness and how do we sustain um, relationships with people when we know they're just going to move on. And in this case... You know, these people wind up staying forever, so they really can't make any relationships with people. Um, what you need to know about this excerpt, I had a lot of fun researching um, 20th century America, and one of the parts of America I wrote about was World War II, which is where this, this scene takes place. There are two soldiers, Stanley and Johnson. Um, Stanley, Stanley's mother brought the herb from Poland, and Johnson is the soldier that winds up having to take the herb that makes him live forever. <clears throat> it was almost time to go. His mother would see him out the door, but not to the train station. She would not watch him leave on the train, his face framed in the window, his garrison cap covering his newly shorn head. She would see him to the door, where he could go to work, to school, to the store, and in the corresponding memory of her mind, he would return. She opened the lock of the jewelry box on the kitchen table with a butter knife, the key orphaned in Resil, Poland. He wondered whether she would produce a pocket watch, a folding knife, his father's or his uncle's, that he could fondle while trying to sleep on the hard earth, dirt full of blood and insides, exposed black tree roots cradling his head like witch fingers. He opened his hand, waiting. She pulled out the envelope, old and brown, and the dark, furry object he regarded, a rat carcass, a hard, moldy bread. Saxifrage. She put the crumbly mound in his palm. Most powerful herb. I save it until now. He glanced at the leaves and roots spread over his palm, dried like a fossilized bird. His lips tightened. His whole life to that point, a slew of herbs, chalky and bitter and syrupy in his teas, his soups, rubbed onto his knees and elbows after school. He put it back in the envelope, more fragile than the herb. You take this. She grabbed his palm, her knuckles blue and bulbous. Eternal life. 
You take it if you are about to die. You will live. This is the only one. You understand? He nodded, pushing it into the pocket of his duffel bag. Herbs had not saved his father, his sister, not spared his mother's hands, curled and broken, her lungs factory black. He hugged her. She smelled like garlic and dust. Then he, Stanley Polensky, walked to the Baltimore station, got on the train, and went to war. They carried what they could carry. Most men carried two pairs of socks in their helmets, K-rations in their pockets, their letters and cigarettes in their vest. That queer little private, Stanley Polinsky, also carried a book, and it was not the Bible. Polinsky threw that thing away. With the nose of his carbine, Calvin Johnson, also a private, poked him in the small of his back, where a children's book, Tom Swift and the Planet Stone, was tucked into his pants, under his shirt. No wonder you can't get any. At least I can read. Polinsky flipped him the bird over his shoulder. They were in a line, two men across, stretching for miles from Suremi on their way to Troyonia. Stanley Polinsky was a boy who, back in Ohio, Johnson would have given the full order to. He would have nailed him with a football where he sat in the bleachers, reading a book. He would have spitballed him from the back of class or given him a wedgie in the locker room after track. Polensky cried in his bunk at night for their first week at Fort Benning, wrote long letters to his mother the way others wrote to their girls. Now, Johnson stared at his slight curved back all day, the sun hotter than fire. On narrow trails in the hills, they pulled themselves up ropes and cleats through passes that only they and their mules, the dumbest, smelliest articles of military equipment ever used to transport supplies, could navigate, driving back enemy strongholds at Nisimi, Ponte Olivio Airport, Marazino, Barra Franca, Villa Rosa, Enna, um, Ceremi, and Galliamo. It would seem so easy if not so many men died. If Johnson was not walking on an ankle he jammed on a hill that had swollen to the size of a softball. And yet their toughest fighting was still to come, at Troyna, with Germans shooting at them from the mountains in every direction. But not today. Today, there was sky and food and the Germans to the east of them. You want these? Polinsky tossed the hard candies from his K-rations over to Johnson. Every day, they had scrambled eggs and ham, biscuits, coffee, four cigarettes for breakfast, cheese, biscuits, hard candy, and cigarettes for lunch, a ham and veal loaf, biscuits, hard candies, and cigarettes for dinner. I thought a Nancy boy like you liked a little candy now and then. Johnson stuffed them in his mouth, pushing them into his cheeks like a squirrel. I haven't brushed my teeth in months, Stanley shook his head. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my teeth. Well, I'll tell you what, Johnson lit a cigarette. If I come across a toothbrush, I'll save it for you. I think you'd have better luck finding a Spanish galleon. Stanley lit his own cigarette. What do you know about Spanish galleons? What do you want to know? I don't know. Johnson closed his eyes. He had not done well in school. When he did not get a football scholarship to Ohio State, He thought he'd become a police officer like his father. Knowing the war would help his chances, he enlisted the first chance he got. What is it, like money or something? No, Stanley drawled, smiling. It's a ship. Warship? And commerce, too. They sailed mostly in the 16th to 18th centuries. Is that what you learned in your Tom Swift book? John o Johnson opened his eyes, studied Stanley lying on his back, his knees swinging open and closed, smoke pluming upward between them. Wouldn't you like to know? 
Stanley stared at the sky. His eyes broke up smiling when he looked at you, happy or sad. They squished a little, the outsides, wrinkling, along with his forehead, his cheeks dimpling. Polinsky was the youngest of six. Johnson had always wanted siblings. His mother had him. Another had died in the womb. He imagined Stanley as a little brother and grimaced. But one took what you got, not what you wanted. Skip ahead. They spent the summer moving inland toward Germany. The war will be over soon, Stanley wrote his mother, his 20th letter. The Germans are running like cowards. He played poker with Johnson and Ennis, throwing pennies and cigarettes and girly pictures into a helmet they use as a pot. I hope you are well and do not worry about me. He spent one week at Netley Hospital for his leg wound. Nothing much has happened to us in Europe, except we are getting fatter. He lost 20 pounds since leaving the States. Hopefully by now, when you get this, I will be on the train home. In September, they entered the Hurricane Forest. I would die for a ham. Johnson let his cigarette dangle as he settled in the brush. It was a game they played sometimes, what they would die for, since they would die for much less. I would die for a turkey sandwich, Stanley answered. Spruce and balsam trees cloaked their eyes, yielding little forests beyond a few feet. The tree limbs low, grabbed, and the men walked with a semi-permanent stoop. I would die for a woman's hips. I would put myself between them and sleep like the dead, Johnson grinned, his teeth white against the green cave. Water dripped constantly. The men could never find the source of it. Sometimes it confused Stanley, and when he slept for brief periods and woke, he thought he was at his parents' house, down the hall from a leaky faucet. Stay here. Johnson's arm would grab for Stanley's ankle as Stanley began to push forward through the brush. The sink is fucking leaking. Stanley waved him off before Johnson yanked and Stanley fell down in the bed of pine needles that covered the forest floor. I would die to get out of this forest, Stanley said as they ate the last of their bread and coffee. The supply lines inward were farther away, their rations fewer. I would die for dry socks. The mud and fog lay on them like a film. In the dark undergrowth, the men rubbed against the trees and each other like ingredients in a stew. Where were the Germans? Surely not as stupid as the Americans, Stanley thought, burrowing through the forest, their tanks and artillery and air force stalled by the dense formation of trees and rough terrain. The Allies were all alone. The brass said that the Hurtigan forest was 50 square miles. It seemed to stretch to 100, then 200, then 300, as late October became early November, and late November became early December. Stanley did not understand how they could not see the Germans, and yet the Germans could see them. They know these forests. They're stuffed in bunkers while we walk right by them, Johnson said, coughing. Johnson had developed a cough, shiver, snore in his sleep. Sometimes, perhaps Stanley could boil the herb for tea, soothe Johnson's deathly rattle. I still have the root, Stanley wrote to his mother although I suspect I will have no reason to use it. You never even told me how. Should I put it under my lip? In a wound, perhaps? His right foot smelled. There was no time to unlace the boot and find out whether his toes had rotted. We are warm and fat and happy. Save me some chinina. 
Duck blood soup, Johnson laughed later, when Stanley described Christmas dinner at home. You eat everything, don't you, Pole? Makes me want to come to your house to dinner after the war. Right now, I would eat anything, Johnson, or Stanley shivered. He shivered when he was awake, and he shivered when he was dreaming. His breath staccatoed with shivers. He shivered when he peed, and he shivered when he shat, and he shivered when he shivered. Johnson would eat his shivers if he could, but they would probably give him diarrhea, he thought, like everything else. They walked in a diamond formation. Stanley walked in the back, Johnson in the front. One man, red-haired, was to their left, another, blonde-haired, to their right. Stanley didn't know their names. It seemed a waste to learn them. Wood and shrapnel fell from the sky, mixed with snow, hitting the ground in hisses. The trees burned, standing still. Stanley listened to the fire eating the wood, the snap of twigs and branches as they broke free of the parent trunks and fell down to the forest. Snake pour, smoke poured from the nooks and crannies of the burning bark, and the men were forced to crawl. On the ground, the red-haired man in front would tap the top of his helmet and point in the direction of the movement, and they would all crouch and fill that direction with fire, grenades. But then the blonde man on the right threw a grenade that hit a tree and bounced back toward them, and they dove leftward and rolled down a small hill. I would die for a stick of gum. Johnson entangled himself from Stanley. The smoke cleared briefly, and the hard, marvelous sun blinked through the, th- through the treetops. This might be your lucky day, Stanley nodded. Behind them, a formation of rock appeared in the trees with a low opening, two by eight feet. A bunker. The red-haired man stood, out, stood off to the side of it. He tossed in a grenade as they turned, covered their ears. Then they waited for the smoke to clear before joining him at the hole. Stanley was the shortest, so he got on his knees and crawled in. He imagined a speckling of pale, dead boys, boys with smooth faces and darting eyes, but it was empty with black. He tapped the inner mouth of the cave to make sure it was still secure. Then he pointed his thumb up, and the others joined him. Now, this is living, red hair said in the darkness. He lit a cigarette and stretched. We stay here till the war ends, okay? At least for a nap, Stanley agreed pulling his blanket out of his backpack. We'll take turns on watch. They slept on ground that wasn't wet and in corners that weren't windy. They slept with their helmets off, their boots unlaced, oblivious to the shelling outside. When they woke, their stomachs were relaxed, growling. They wondered how to get back behind the line for rations, wondered where they were. I say we stay in the hole, the red man said, haired man said. Yeah, and one of our own boys throws another grenade down here? Then what? The blonde said, tightening his laces. They were broken. It did not go all the way up the boot. That's why we take turns on watch, the red-haired man shook his head. And when our whole company leaves us behind, Johnson loaded his rifle. We'll starve to death in the woods. Moving 30 feet a day, red man sneered. Not fucking likely we get left behind. My orders were to take the forest. Johnson craned his head out of the hole. I don't know about yours. They decided to follow the ravine that led from the bunker. All along the Kraut Trail, Johnson laughed. Think they'll shell us here? I say we're mighty close to something. Stanley lit a cigarette. Think we're near the west wall? By God, we should be so lucky, the blonde man said. Then we can shoot the hell out of them and go home. Stanley could not picture home. His mother's face appeared vaguely, the smell of her, the sound of her the hardware store where he worked on Eastern Avenue, 
his school, Baltimore Polytechnic. He could not be sure whether any of those things had happened or whether they were a dream, whether he had always been at war and always would be. They walked along the ravine for hours. Sometimes they would come across a body of a German, always picked clean. One body was missing its fillings, its mouth open, and exposing, exposing bloody stumps of gum line. We need to find some krauts so we can take their brow, the blonde man said. I'd even eat the fucking krauts, red-haired man said. Maybe we should go back and find our men. Maybe you're right, Stanley said. Even if we find the Germans, they'll probably outnumber us. Our men are probably ahead of us, Johnson said, his, men nodding, his head nodding forward. That's why we're seeing so many dead. I told you we got left behind. Not likely, the red-haired man said. I'm going back. The whole month, I ain't seen nobody get ahead of me. If there's someone ahead of us, it's a different division, which I'm more than happy for. Let them take some shots. I'm with him, the blonde turned in the slit trench. Come on, safety in numbers, Red grabbed his rifle. Let's go back. What do you say? Johnson looked at Stanley. Johnson was the leader, but Stanley wanted to find their squadron, find food. Let's go back. Stanley didn't look at Johnson. The pole is decided, Johnson said, spitting in the trench, kicking at the snow dirt with a shoe. Let's go. They turned around and followed the slit trench back to the bunker. Then they climbed up the slope they had fallen down earlier. Let's sweep out and move forward, Stanley said. Stanley moved in front, Johnson in back. The shelling shook and shredded the tree canopy above them, branches falling like swooping vultures, pelting their shoulders and arms, leaving welts. The raining wood and shells filled the air with the sound of sanding metal, and Stanley could not hear anymore, only see their jaws moving, their eyes flicking back and forth as they scanned the area for mines, for Germans, for secure ground in front of them. Stanley wished they had stayed in the bunker. He glimpsed a man running through the trees, white and red cross armband, a medic. They knew how to get back to the line. All they needed to do was follow him. Stanley motioned to the men and ran toward the figure. He had not gotten far when the ground swelled behind him like a wave, sweeping him off his feet, a shell. His body hit the dirt at angles, elbows, knees, ankles, before rolling. When he stopped, he felt for his legs, moved them, and stood up, crouched over. Johnson, he called back. The area from where he had been thrown was peppered with wood and metal, blackened bark, gray and red snow, Johnson's helmet. He followed the trail to Johnson, what was left of him. Blood smeared from Johnson's left groin, his left leg scattered around him, bone broken and carved like scrimshaw, and strewn with strips of muscle and skin. Johnson shivered, coughed, and looked lazily up at Stanley, drunk with shock. Stanley called for the medic. The blond man staggered up and then off, shouting for help. Stanley tore a strip of cloth from Johnson's backpack and made a tourniquet. Johnson's big, long face caved in from his cheeks to his chin. His eyes fluttered. Johnson, Stanley shook him, but Johnson was going. Stanley took off his helmet and scooped the herb out of the lining. He opened Johnson's mouth and pushed it in. But Johnson didn't chew. Stanley opened Johnson's mouth and pulled a third of it between Johnson's gums and teeth. 
He picked off another piece and put it in the red beating hole that was once Johnson's hip and leg. Then he moved Johnson's jaw with his own hands, pushing Johnson's tongue aside, grinding the herb with Johnson's teeth. Johnson's mouth was as dry as cotton, and the herb co coated the pink and soft insides. Johnson stuck his finger in Johnson's mouth. Stanley stuck his finger in Johnson's mouth and pushed the flakes, the unchewed pieces, down his throat. Johnson gagged, sitting up and coughing, hands at his neck. The green-blown flakes flew out, covering Stanley's face and shirt. Stanley wrapped his arms under Johnson's chest and jerked upward. Stanley jerked and Johnson coughed and the herb chunk flew into the snow. Medic, the man dropped his kit behind Stanley. Stanley moved back and caught sight of the spat-out herb. It glowed in the detritus, unearthly. Johnson's heart jumped. He reached for the glowing orange saxifrage. The medic turned, shook his head, frowned. Johnson was dead. The medic tagged him, took one of his dog tags, and scrambled back into the forest. It seemed wrong to leave Johnson like this, any of them like this. Maybe Stanley wouldn't fight anymore. He would stay here with Johnson, work the herb into his wounds, down his throat. He could stick his knife into Johnson's chest and massage it into his heart. The trees shook around him. Men shouted in the distance, the trill of bullets, explosions, small fires baked in pockets of black trees. When another shell landed to the left of Stanley, he could feel the warmth of it on his leg. He did what he imagined any other person would do. He ran. Thanks. I feel differently about herbs now. I'm going to put a lot of parsley on. Um, thank you for coming. This book, Tin God, uh, is made up of two stories. Two, both of them were too short to turn into a novel, so the problem was how to hook them together. I had one that was about, um, uh, uh, it was from a dream of a conquistador who was in the tall grasses of the prairie and he kept hearing whispering around him. And that was the Native Americans. And the other story was a story which uh, came by via a relative, a fairly close relative, who told me a story that was, he was personally involved in, in which perhaps him, perhaps, and a friend of his had tossed a bag of dope into a nearby field, uh, and them being farmers. And um, so I finally figured out, having these two separate stories, um, that the location was what, lo uh, what connected them, that 400 years had gone by uh, between the two, but I still had the problem of how to hook them together. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but I just decided that it was obvious that it would have to be God, and that it, you, of course, know that God is a Midwestern, middle-aged woman. <clears throat> and that is the reason why it connects up to Baltimore, because you have those around here, too. Uh, so I'll read you a little bit from the beginning to give you an idea of her voice, and then uh, 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 further on into the uh, problem of the book. Hi, this is God. G-O-D, God with all the big letters. I'm out here in the middle of a field. Oh, yeah, I'm everywhere, duh. You can see me anytime, star side. Whichever star keeps the quarks from going inside out. 
but right now I'm doing field work, work in the field. In particular, I'm broadcasting like the granite man on top of the Capitol building, the tallest in the state, the granite man whose hand casts out grain from a, big, from a bag slung on his shoulder full of it. Broadcasting. You thought electricity. A TV special via satellite. A mile high sent it to the sky. No, grain. Remember, I put the Virgin Mary on the front of a box of cornstarch. No Indian maiden. The feather in her hair is a nice touch. For those who recall the Virgin's exit, doves and whatnot in a jet stream. It's got to be grain for that girl. Corn, sorghum, you name it, I broadcast it. I seed it. It's all about grain. Well, it's not all about grain. It's grass, too. Grass I care a lot about. Grass is what you have when you don't plant, but I plant that, too. You see, this field hasn't been grain, grain, grain from kingdom come. A season of soybeans, a rotation of rye. I'm talking pre-interstate, pre-train, pre-wagon, pre-grain, when grass grew by itself, just as grass, up to here. And wind is what broadcasted then, uh, meaning me, of course. A wind that never stops, a wind that pets and fingers and searches the grass for whatever's lost. Grain or what? Faith? Dope. I put the grass bit on pretty thick. So, things happen. Back and forth, every chapter is different. Oh, I meant to tell you this. When, um, in the hardback edition, which no one bought, because, of course, it costs a lot of money, uh, the uh, book designer got all excited by the, the, how the sto- two stories came together at the end. And <laughs> so the last ten pages are black with white type. And uh, they didn't do that in the reprint, but... I've got plenty of these left. (laughs) Chapter 8. Now, what do you need to know about Chapter 8? Oh, not too much. This is the chapter of the two guys with the problem of getting their dope back from the field. And uh, Pork, our our hero, as it were, is sitting around in a um, a bar, a local bar, which has a lot of um, uh, trophies hanging from the walls and standing around. And uh, it starts off when God's talking again. All over the Midwest, you find people you know I'm here. Why, there was this woman in Minnesota, you read about her in the grocery line, that grocery line kind of paper, who found me in her dishwasher on a scratched plastic goofy cup. There are others who don't know there's something, who know there's something going on and are forever talking aliens aliens, and I don't mean the unregistered citizen slaves who trim trees and pick fruit. They talk about people of real color, purple, for example, with the weeds attached to the person's undersides or insect parts where their mouths should be. Sometimes that same newspaper puts them on the front page with the star's parts. And there are also those who, don't, who know there's something going on, but they can't quite put their finger to it. What they end up fingering usually isn't God in general, the human mind always running to evil like it does, but not always. Remember the girl who last year offered her firstborn to the rising river? I was behind her in my pickup. Morning, mumbles Rolf from the grill while I'm taking up the rear booth, signaling with two fingers for double eggs. Usually he's hanging over me, looking down my front for whatever hint of a décolleté, a plaid work shirt with, from L.L. Bean with darts affords. Oh, 
You forgot God's not sex-bound. You may not have known it was a she until this point. Heads up. Or at least quit staring at that goofy cup reproduced in color across the front of that grease-stained paper. Did all... Did all that mention of broadcasting, of seed getting scattered, make you put me down as a male? Think of my usual costume, a real sideshow beard and what can only be called a dress. Then fast forward a little, press the amalgam button, and add L.L. Bean. Trick or treat. Open your mind the way I open the local rag every morning, the way I read every little bit, which is not a lot in print. I read it, even though I know everything. Even the truth about ads to convince people to sell plastic goods through the at-home party method. Even about public broadcasting. But today, Rolf's not so interested in me as in the pager he's nestling into the paw of the moth-eaten Kodiak bear at the grill's end. Not a minute later, a cop comes through the door for it. I could have sold it, boasts Rolf, waving his broad white hand from behind the bear, sold it and made a fortune, a genuine police unit like that. The cop clips the pager back onto his belt. That'll teach me to get comfortable. This is a failing of mine, typecasting by uniform, but I hate cops. I shouldn't say this, but some of them think they're God. I should get my own uniform. That would teach me. Anyway, whenever I see a cop, I do not like to see him. In response to this one, I waggle my paper like I'm casual and friendly. Then his pager goes off. It does happen. Doesn't that mean you have to be somewhere else, says Rolf? The cop turns the squawking down. I'm here to protect you for however long it takes to get takeout coffee with milk. One white Rolf shouts to a passing waitress. Rolf likes cops less than I do. But he's Chamber of Commerce, Kiwanis Club, Knights of Columbus. Some of his best friends are cops. This one dates his first cousin. See, over there, the cop tilts his chin toward Pork, who's sipping his own coffee in a booth. Pork hasn't changed out of the clothes he drove to town in. Silk shirt, shiny pants, and he keeps his sunglasses on indoors. My theory is, says the cop, the louder the clothes, the more likely the crime. You'll be arresting the priest in his vestments next, says Rolf. Let me just play cop for one minute, says the cop, okay? Besides, I think I followed that dude not long ago. I think we'll have ourselves a little conversation. I'm allowed that. Be my guest. Rolf shakes his head, then steps back behind the register to find a toothpick. The cop sits down right in front of Pork, steals his jaw, and puts his hand on his holster. He's about to open his mouth when Pork says, Excuse me, officer, and scoots out the booth to the door. Wish I could have have a picture of that, says Rolf, watching Pork roar out of the lot. The problem is, the cop says, taking a sip of Pork's coffee, is that they're all guilty by the time they reach 20. I don't know exactly what of, but they've done it. You could have said, Stop or I'll shoot, says Rolf, catching the waitress with the coffee to go. Rolf, the cop says. I don't want to leave any holes in your place. The coffee's bad enough. He sips off the lid of his cup. Rolf barks like a seal when he's really tickled, his arms shaking helplessly like flippers at his side. He barks now. He goes on like this even after the pneumatic door eases shut behind the cop. Then he takes a big breath. He slops a wet rag over to the booth where the boy and then the cop sat. And he slides that rag way across the table as if he means to clean it. 
though it is as clean as that rag. Then he leans way over to look under the table and pulls off a piece of paper stuck there. I see all this from my vantage in the corner where he has forgotten me. Nothing says nothing like something from the oven. I don't know if you remember that, but anyway. Hums Rolf, going back over to the register to insert a new toothpick into his mouth. He crumples up the paper. Then he spots me watching him. He says, do you need a refill or what? I look as if I have not seen a thing. I do that all the time since I see so much, so I have it down. I'm not bothered by him, by his what, as belligerent as it is, although I do not have the patience with it that I would like. I am worn thin with parody and ranters with Cadillacs that fart instead of honk. Thank you, I say, and I hold out my cup. A waitress is beckoned. As soon as I'm finished, I drive out to check my field again. Not one of those hired hands turned up yesterday to plow it under. There was a tornado. And all that, un- which is the problem, they can't find the dope, but anyway. <laughs> and all that undone growing wears on me, all that grass and abeyance. I follow Pork's route, the one he hightailed out on the side road to where the goods have got to be, right next to my undone field. The wayward always returned to the scene of the crime, not for its possible reenactment or even to revel in the details, but to double-check whether they've left anything. In this case, it's everything. Of course, I know where. Meanwhile, Rolf tidies up, as is his wont. He crushes my left-behind newspaper into a ball as small as that paper he had already pressed into the overflowing pail below the bar. Then he tells a waitress he'll be right back and looks longingly at the large gun mounted over the entry. He bought it at somebody's divorce sale so long ago he couldn't tell you if anybody ever promised it did work. It works there, looking good now, as if he has hunted with it and will again. A witching wand for people is what he really needs, but he begins to drive. Have you seen a black Porsche? Is not what he can ask the lady at the drive-in bank window, the only soul available to talk to in this car-driven country. Instead, he drives the streets, all the streets in town, which are not many. Arranged in the usual grid, they're bisected first by train tracks and then interstate cloverleaf, almost gothic in embellishment in comparison to the frame houses that front it so dutifully, street after ruined street against its endless concrete. Rolf drives all the way to the edge of town, to the bronze horse put up by the local orthodontist, bolted on to Boot Hill, where exhumed pioneers are found to have turned into rock, a place where he can't do anything but drive to the exact opposite end, to the living cemetery, which he does. This cemetery is bordered by the usual drag strip, providing plots for dragsters about pork's age and car make, but no pork now. Rolf cruises past the one drive-in that stays open all winter, offering heaters, and then on to a Quonset hut where half-breeds dance in summer for what few tourists disembark the cloverleaf and need the sight of people who don't really live there either to make themselves feel at home, or at least elsewhere. No pork. Rolf has a moment of enragement. 
He does not hesitate to stop the car and get out and pound on the hood. A woman dusting the sill of her picture window not far from the dance site takes the pounding as a signal of machine frustration that overtakes us all now and then since the invention of the cotton gin, and not malice, and she smiles, shaking her head. I drive by on my route that follows Porks, lifting my two fingers off the wheel in traditional car greeting. Rolf is getting back inside his car, sulking and thinking. A sure sign, he is thinking, is that he puts the car in reverse. Reverse is a more determined mode of transportation than forward is. It just is. Thank you. So we're supposed to, we're supposed to talk about two, how it feels to have two different stories going on in the same book, because Jen's book has two novellas in the same book. Yeah, sorry, the one I didn't read from. Um, <laughs> makes discussion hard, right? Um, but I can, we can still we can still chat. Talk, yeah, talk. I like to talk. Yeah. So yeah, you you had two novellas, right? And you turned them into a novel. I had two novellas, and I left them as is. Yeah. Into two novellas. So I guess we could talk about why. Well, obviously, mine weren't going to. I couldn't combine them. You couldn't mine get them together. You, didn't, you needed God. That's they're completely. All. Di- yeah. Apparently, that God is the answer to everything. Yeah, well, of course. Um, yeah. So, how did. Like, I mean, did you just, like, it was like four in the morning and just, like, oh my God, I could just <laughs> oh my like, God. put God in here. And that would. How did you solve it? Like, well, uh, my first novel, uh, Cannibal, uh, I, it took me 15 years to write it. And I started off. Uh, you know, with you know, going into everybody's heads and all these characters and so forth, and slowly I figured out that a, uh, it took place in the Sudan, and I didn't know what any Africans were thinking, so that made it hard to do from the third po- person point of view. And then about um, ten years into the story, the guy I was with, a miserable, horrible person who inspired me to write it. Oh, <coughs> uh, revenge is usually the best uh, policy for a first book. Uh, revealed that he, he said, did I know he was with the CIA when I was with him? And, of course, then I realized I didn't know what was hit in his head either. Yeah. So uh, then I rewrote the book from scratch completely and forget about third person. I went into first person. And uh, that's, it was kind of comfortable being in the driver's seat, you know. And so um, when I – this was the second one that I wrote, not the second one I published, but um, – that I knew I had to get that voice in order to make it come alive. And uh, I am the eldest of nine children. That ought to account for some kind of godlike abilities, right? Um, sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to turn more toward you, but this is like, isn't this the shortest table yes. you've ever sat? It's, it's like, I can't even fit my fat legs you under here. You have to here. be 17th century um, That's or why I'm like, like this. Um, but the, the book that I didn't read from, the Could You Be For Now, there are actually two novellas in here, and they're written years apart, um, as, as writers do. Um, one is a first-person narrative about a, a mentally challenged boy who accidentally kills a girl in the neighborhood who he has a crush on, who he thinks is on TV but isn't, and he runs away, um, and a trucker picks him up, who, you know, none of us would ever get a ride with a trucker, but Jimmy, not knowing any better, gets a hitchhike and picks up you know, gets a ride with a trucker, and as someone, a reviewer said, terrible things happen across America. Um, 
in the story. And um, the other story, the other novella is um, about two women, an older woman who whose daughter wants her to blog her memoirs for her grandchildren, so she has that to pass on. And she hires a younger girl to help her blog her memoirs. And they actually... Um, the older woman is in her 60s and the, the, the younger woman's in her 20s and they actually wind up having a, a May, literally a May-September romance. Mm-hmm. They go out from May to September. It's sort of a play on the May-December. So, yeah, I, I couldn't figure out any way to combine those two stories at all. Um, How do you decide which one went first in the book? That's, I, um, well, Dezenk actually accepted um, the first story about the boy, Jimmy. Um, it's called... I can make it to California before it's time for dinner. And then I had actually over a year between acceptance and publication to figure out what I wanted the rest of the book to be because obviously one novella wasn't going to be enough. And I thought I would just pad it with short stories. And then I wrote the second novella in the meantime, and I still hadn't considered it. And um, I don't know. One day I know that I had just gotten Josh Wheel's collection, The New Valley, and that's three novellas. And I was like, that's not a bad idea to see how they would pair together and how they would work. And I put it together and I, I sent it to Dezank and I had a different title, um, something clever that Dorothy Parker had said about novellas. And um, it was actually Matt Bell, who was my editor at Dezank, and um, came up with this great title. It's a line from the second novella, Could You Be With Her Now? And um, both of the stories really are kind of about vulnerability and loss and, um, and trust. And um, so that there are similarities that aren't obvious on the surface, but once you read them, I think um, even I didn't see them at first. Mm-hmm. So, so that, would you ever write another novella? Being so difficult to really... Well, in your case, think, it wasn't so do, difficult. I mean, did yeah. you, you didn't start out to write novellas. No. Did you? I didn't either. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you write the short story and it becomes too long for a story, and, it, and then you, but you can't make it work into a novel. Mm-hmm. And then... There it is. Yeah. All the really... F- Really important works of art were novellas, though, you know. And I think, you know, it's, it's, I'm so glad that people Dave have read it because uh, I've, um, I happened upon a forum, like, on the Internet where a book club was discussing whether or not to read my, this book. And they were like, no, I don't care how good the story is. I don't want to read a short book. And I guess you have that problem with, like, we have that problem with short stories, too. No one wants to read short well, stories. It's supposed to be in the short world. Of they wanna, well, people want to, they want to pay Fifteen or twenty dollars, and they want to invest in something that's really big and meaty, and that they can really get into. And I, I think that is a problem with short stories and novellas. Um, and I, I have the real world, you know, evident, evidence of. But um, yeah, I, I would. I, would you do it again? I mean, you just you, you don't you don't really choose what you write. It kind of it chooses itself for you. So, yeah, I had a my novels usually 150 pages long, mm-hmm. a little more usually, more or less in the end. Uh, and the second one, um, Counterpoint published it, and they said, and I've also given them a manuscript of short stories, and so they said, well, let's just put them together. And I think maybe that's less marketable than uh, a short novel. So uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was an idea. Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Yes. Oh, no, it was my first novel. It was a wonderful success story after 15 years. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I decided to write only in first person, almost a kind of a hyper first person in which I didn't allow 
I didn't know anything except what was just inside my head because I really I couldn't judge what was going on anywhere else about anybody else. So that was my solution to that problem. Yeah, it was um, very interior. Yeah. Did you guys see Poe today? He's here. He's walking around. Yeah. Say hi to him. He came just yeah. for today. Yeah. Well, I was just interested. I, I would like to be because I've read both. I've been bringing up another book, uh, Trailer Girl. Yeah. And I was interested in the fact that it's very vulnerable. Like this girl, or not narrative, this girl running on this I have a book now I'm just finishing called Scylla and Her Sister, which is about Scylla and Charybdis, only in contemporary time. Anybody know who Scylla and Charybdis is anymore? It's a rock and a hard place in the, from the Odyssey. And one of, them, one of the sisters has cancer, and she dies at the end of the book. But, uh, and the other one kills her father. And, uh, you know, I tried very hard to do just that, to make sure that you understood that they were uh, vulnerable people, but they were very strong. Yeah. It seemed important to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess when I got into Jimmy's head, I mean, he's obviously free from the judgments that other people have or, or their concerns, and he doesn't really, on lots of levels, doesn't know what's happening to him. And there are a few moments where he, he starts to put things together, and but then he can't really make that leap. Like maybe there are, there's this whole gray area. There's good people, bad people, and then there's all these people and the comprised most people, you know, the gray area, and he, he can't really figure that out in the book. Everybody's a good guy or a bad guy, but I don't know. I, well, you know, I, I just, when I wrote the books, they were just about people, I, I'm always interested in people who, are, who aren't necessarily represented in literature, and I know, like Sandra says in the second novel, no one ever writes about older people. Mm-hmm. I mean, older people write, but there aren't books about older people, and there, maybe there aren't as many books told from Jimmy's point of view, and I don't know. That really doesn't answer your question, but I just—I didn't really feel like I wasn't writing writing them out of charity. I was writing, I was writing them out of pure interest in in their vitality, and that that's different from mine. And and because you know, fiction is so littered with young, beautiful people, and some people only want to read about good-looking, successful people. And it's like there, but so few, so little of the world is you know comprises beautiful, successful people. And there's, you know, I don't know. So. But 